Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 301 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with my amazing guest, Neil Gaiman. Um, a lot of you have been asking about this for a long time. And, and in fact, me and Neil discussed that we've been lining this up for a long time. So yeah, it's great to finally have it here. If this is your first time tuning in, oh, good Lord, have we got a back catalogue for you to enjoy. Um, off the top of my head, if you're a comic book guy, you know, one of my first guests was Alan Moore. I've also had Garth Ennis, Warren Ellis, uh, Mark Miller, uh, Kieran Gillen, and and Jamie McKelvey. Um, so loads of good good comic book people in and around there. Just in this podcast, we mentioned J- Jade Adams. I've had J- Jade Adams on. Um, who else do we mention? Oh, I mean, obviously Amanda Palmer. <laughs> yeah, I've had Amanda on. So yeah, that's great. So there's loads to go and look at. And this week, or last week, sorry, in the same week, we hit our 300th episode and our 16 millionth download, which is, I'm now realise is even more impressive considering I've got a stutter like that that pops up every now and then. So the fact that any of you are still listening is quite astounding. So thank you for that. Um, But yeah, it's mad. I really do appreciate all of you listening and spreading the word and tuning in because that's a mad amount for it's just me with my recording gear as Neil or I mean as Amanda will contest as I accidentally woke her up it's just me rocking up at these places with my recording gear recording it and then going on my merry way and eventually uploading it for you guys to hear so yeah it's wicked to hit that um hit that milestone I'll get on with the podcast um obviously we've got winter gear in my web store speech dot com. our slogan over there or on the label is we may not be for you and that's fine which again i feel may resonate with some fans of neil and amanda in fact um and yeah we've got that on our new our new beanies we've got it on on hoodies gloves all sorts of other stuff and some cool designs and weird weird shit so go and check that out speech development records.com and obviously i'm at patreon.com slash scroobius pip I, I joined patreon because of amanda after my chat with amanda i'd always felt uncomfortable with kind of asking people for stuff um in fact i remember i remember seeing a tweet where s- someone was angry at amanda because she was crowdfunding a music video L- let's say the music video was 10 grand i don't know i can't remember any details at all but let's say it was 10 grand and someone got angry saying, well, you and your husband have got loads of money or made loads of money over the years. Why are you asking us to pay for it? And I think it was Neil that responded saying, no, the tweet said, why are you asking us for 10 grand? And I think the tweet, Neil responded saying, we're not asking anyone for 10 grand. We're asking 10,000 people for a pound. And it's a massive difference. It was a real breakthrough for me. Like thinking as a as a thought experiment if you've got an artist who's got a hundred grand in the bank spending 10 grand on that on a music video or even just a hundred grand budget let's say not even in the bank a budget for a record spending 10 grand on that on a music video that's a big percentage of your budget that's 10 percent. whereas if you're whoever a a regular person and say you've got 10 or you're lucky enough to have ten thousand pounds in the bank i mean that's that's a big amount but say you have then a pound of that it's a massive difference the 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 one side is t- 10 grand of 100 grand is 10 percent. a pound of 10 grand is 0.0001 or whatever it works out as you know so yeah 
It's a big difference there, and that and that intrigued me. And anyway, my Patreon is trash. Um, it's only a dollar a month. I don't really do anything on there anymore. I post previews of each each time I record an episode. I'll take a photo and post so you guys know in advance. You will have known a month ago that I'd recorded with Neil, um, and I've also got a year's worth of bonus episodes and uh, poem of the month. I've stopped doing them now because I'm I'm busy and. You know, I I didn't want to do tears. I didn't want to do it for this for five pound a month. You you get these, so I just did a dollar a month. But basically, if you want to s- support, if you feel that you listen to the podcast, and if you bu- you bumped into me in a pub, you'd go, I listen to your podcast a lot. Uh, let me buy you a pint. So you know, you know what I mean? It's like it's three pints a year or f- two pints a year if you're in London. Maybe I don't know. Maybe four pints a year. Um, so yeah, that's how I, s- I set that up, and then I've added stuff like here's some bonus stuff and things like that. So yeah, that's all over at Patreon.com/slash/ScroobiousPit, but no hard sell there. I ain't trying to get any money off any of you if it isn't spare and won't go unnoticed. Oh, also in this podcast, there's kind of a weird bit, and we've left it in as best we can. We've kind of edited a bit, but yeah, there's a bit when Neil, there's a knock at the door, and I left it rolling because I thought, oh, we'll just edit this the uh, the the gap down a bit and it'll be all natural but it's kind of beautiful and i'm not sure how much picked up but i think some picked up his postman just had some lovely things to say about neil and neil's work and they just had a lovely chat and catch up so neil seemed okay with it being kind of there we then talk about it afterwards but yeah i'm not sure how much is picked up but we'll kind of see what we can do I said it might just be a gap and then it kind of gets explained but it was a beautiful illustration of the the life that Neil has has orchestrated for himself it's a beautiful thing that that's that's how his his days unfold um yeah let's get on with the podcast this is episode 301 with Neil Gaiman before we get into more of the podcast, if you've followed me a while, a lot of you will know that there's something I do at this time of year. So something the UK started to embrace a short while ago was Black Friday. And it's a day where digital and f- physical retailers all have big reductions on their nice, shiny new products. Um you will also have heard every blooming episode me banging on about speechdevelopmentrecords.com, which is my web store, and it's where I sell all my merch and all my music and my DVDs and my books and all sorts of stuff that I kind of live off. So if you've not been paying attention over the last few years, it may surprise you to know that Black Friday is the one day of the year I close my web store. On that day, I always put a thing up on my website saying, spend the day, just go and have a walk in a park or um, or buy a cookie or some ice cream, some perishables that are the same all year round. And a lot of you will know that one of the big problems of our consumer nature is the amount of waste that we have. Um, an example can be phones, and you'll see why I've picked that specific example in a minute, but it's a it's a valid one. A new phone comes out and people instantly feel that need because of the consumerism that we've built up, that need to buy the newest phone. When their original phone is maybe perfectly okay. Or even, like, an example, my dad had had an iPhone 4 for years. So if you've done that, 
then you might not need the newest iPhone 11 or Android equivalent. You might be, you know, really perfectly good with the 10 or the 9 or the 8. And that's something that the 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 guys I've been been talking to over at GifGaff about because GifGaff are trying to encourage people, particularly on phones, because phones are a key one in this kind of needless upgrade culture. And again, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with a lovely new phone, but equally, there's nothing wrong with a lovely, a refurbished phone because you're, it's 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 the more um, sustainable choice. And GifGaff, if you if you go to gifgaff.com/refurbished, you can see it's a big thing for for, for those guys now again it's uh, i'm not rallying against smartphones i i use my smartphone for everything i do work wise but i'm currently a couple of smartphones b- behind or the newest and it's fine it's everything i need um so yeah getting a refurbished phone is the smart savvy and sustainable way to buy a refurbished phone it's smart because refurbished phones are great quality and cost less than buying new that's kind of a key thing it's savvy because all all the gift gaff refurbished phones come with a 12 month warranty so it's not like you just you're walking into a charity shop and taking a risk um, and it's sustainable because refurbished phone is the more sustainable choice than buying a new phone because it's not adding to our our pile our slew of um of unused phones of phones that are perfectly good that have been discarded because there's a shiny new one with a really good advert with an awesome song on and and stuff like that so yeah i just wanted as said i wanted to have a quick i chatted i'd been talking to the guys at gifgaff about this for a while and i thought it was a really good campaign to encourage people even if you get a refurbished phone if your old phone still works pass it on to to someone in your family you know someone who might be buying a phone save them the money you know i'm rallying against even purchasing new things here which might not be ideal for the, the, the guys at GifGav who sell phones. But I mean it. And I think they would get behind that. Um, it's fine to want to upgrade, but you don't need to upgrade to the brand new, newest, top of the range, nothing else ever like it. And equally, when you are upgrading, even to a refurbished phone, if your old phone isn't b- b- broken or hasn't been dropped in the toilet or wherever else you irresponsible people are up to these days, um, pass it on to a member of your family, a younger member of your family, who maybe, you know, is having their first smartphone and doesn't need all the bells and whistles, or an older member of your family who's still on an, a Nokia uh, a 2220. Is it a 2220 or f- 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 5250? An old Nokia. And now he's going to have this amazing, exciting upgrade of a of a smartphone. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my, my point. My web store, speechdevelopmentrecords.com, is going to be closed on Black Friday, we will be open again, maybe at the weekend, maybe we'll close all weekend, and we'll just see you on Monday, there's there's, there's loads of other things to spend your money on, none of this is essential, it's nice to have treats, but it's not nice to be tricked into thinking those treats are essential parts of your life, um, yeah, I've rambled on enough, wow, okay, on with the podcast. This piece of fiction is 
joined today by Neil Gaiman. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Last week I felt very discombobulated. This week I had a sort of Monday where things got done. Yeah, that's always good. And, yeah. Oh, what do you feel caused the discombobulation? Uh, Mostly just so many different things spiralling. Yeah. You know, I love being a writer. Being a writer is a lovely, simple, straightforward job where I just write things down. Yeah. But I'm all these other things too, and yeah. they take time and they take attention and they have emails that need answering. And even if there are things that I'm not doing that I'm getting other people to do, I have to tell the other people to do them. And yeah, yeah. Tell the other people what happened once they've done them or whatever. And, and delegation is never as easy as delegation, is it? it There's still really the, the, the the checks and, and and balances, I guess, of of all of those things. So there's a level on which. Yesterday was just, it was just a nice yesterday in which I, I knocked things off. Yeah. I got things done and got a chunk of writing, found a place in town to go and write that was comfortable and nice. Perfect. And that I felt safe is the wrong word, but just felt like, okay, there are people here looking out for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is just a nice kind of thing if you're, if it's just you and a computer. Yeah. A safe place to stop being aware of as such, because you need to, yeah. to lose yourself at times, even if that is, it looks like I've I've had it before, where I'll suddenly come back into the space and be, oh, I'm steering. There is good timing. Going to be a delivery sometime, because it can't be anything else. <laughs> I finished uh, reading your novel, that last one. Did you like it? Yeah. Awesome. And all the way... Yeah. Tells you that he's read. That was a beautiful thing there where we've just had this moment where there was a postman and he's saying, I've just finished your last novel and as a fan of it, that that must be a beautiful thing to have those, to have been in the game long enough to have this body of work out there that is so broad. You might not expect the postman, but equally you could be out in town and, and bump into people and... It's very odd. Yeah. It's lovely. You know, there was, a, there was a piece this morning, one of those sort of online pieces um, of the 10 best Neil Gaiman things. Yeah. And I reposted it knowing that it wouldn't have been my list, probably wouldn't have been the list of anybody reading it. But what I loved was that I've done enough stuff yeah. that you could get 100 people and they'd all have their list of the 10 best things I've done. The different 10 best things, yeah. And it's oh. what's great as well is... I mean, you spoke about you love being a writer and now there's numerous roles where obviously you're sh- sh- showrunner on things and all sorts of other stuff that have other responsibilities. But the, the simplicity of being a writer is far more complex because you've, you've written shorts, you've written novels, you've written comics, you've written gr- graphic novels, screenplays. There's such a variation even within that specific area of your of your, your work and life. So 
is that key for you to keep it interesting for yourself to have that variation and change? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's interesting because I'm now been doing this really for 36 years. Yeah. 36, you know, I've been a professional writer for 36 years and a couple of months. Yeah. And in many ways, through the majority of my career, I did it wrong. Right. Which is to say that the way that you get proper success and attention and particularly, you know, financial success and so on and so forth is you're right if you can, something as close to the same book over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you can, write one a year, mm. and they have them come out at a predictable time, either be a May author or an October author, Yeah. so that everybody gets to look around in October and say, ah, I need the new Neil Gaiman, which will be a lot like, yeah. I liked American Gods, I thought British Gods was good, and ah, he's doing Celtic Gods now. Yeah. And, and so... You do that thing over and over again. And, and I forget whether it was Freud or Jung, or definitely one of those sort of big beardy, you know, Viennese types, who, when asked by somebody how you became famous, replied, essentially, you shit all in the same place. Yeah. And I have not been shitting in the same place for 36 years. I, I move around. You've been I, sh- sh- shitting all over the place. I yeah. have. And... <laughs> A lot of that is, you know, for me, the idea of being sentenced to do the same thing over and over again, even if it was something I loved, would be like being told, okay, you know, you really like baked potatoes. Yeah. And for the rest of your life, you only get to eat baked potatoes. Yeah. But but I do like other things as well. It's like, no, it's going to be baked potatoes from here on out. Yeah. From... For me, the fact that I get to do comics and film scripts and song lyrics and poems and short stories and novellas and novels and I get to write mainstream stuff and fiction and non-fiction and do a bit of journalism here and make some television and, and all of that is just like, this is, for me, the equivalent of being able to eat what I want. Yeah. So, um, so how have you found a kind of... Sticking in one realm for a few books in a row because equally the first pizza you make is probably going to be nice the third or fourth pizza you make you'd think is going to be better because you're more familiar with the world you're more familiar with the ingredients so how has it been to go from american gods and and, and moving through you know i think generally speaking if i'm going to get something right i probably got it wrong first right it really is. It more like perhaps more like pancakes than pizzas. Yeah, yeah. But that first pancake you make, no matter how good the pancake mixture, no matter what you've done to the to the pan, it's always going to be this strange sludgy thing that doesn't quite look yeah. like a pancake. Yeah. And then by pancake two or pancake three, you're tossing them blithely in the air, yeah. and they're perfect pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that. And you know, I do tend to get things wrong, but I like having the kind of career that allows me. To go and get things wrong. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have made Good Omens if I hadn't made Neverwhere, the BBC series, Mm -hmm. and been so dissatisfied and frustrated with what I, with how far the thing that we made was from the thing in my head. Mm. 
and I wound up writing the novel of yeah. Neverwhere as a kind of a a way of of trying to go. No, this was what I meant. This Correct, was what it was it? meant to be like. It's it's fascinating because how was that as a as an experience? Because as an author, you're largely working alone. What you get out of yourself is what is the finished product with TV and film and all these things. It's such a collaborative process and there's so many other people who have roles that are out of your control in, in many ways. Or there's so many things that are out of your con- control, I guess. How was that as an experience that first time to when to all the developments along the way, I guess? Well, the biggest difference was I knew that in order to make good omens... Mm. I had to be in control. With Neverwhere, I wasn't in control. I was the writer, Mm. but I wasn't the showrunner. I wasn't the producer. I wasn't the director. I was just the writer. And I discovered that there is a very weird phenomenon that can happen in television where while you're writing something, and in any kind of scripting, really, while you're writing it, you're God. You are absolutely in control of everything, everything people say, everything that happens, wherever we are. It's yours, and it's going to happen the way that you want it to. And then the moment that you hand it over, the real world hits, Mm. and suddenly you have budget, and you have um, practicalities, and you have whether or not the art department are simpatico, and the costume person, and all of that kind of thing. With 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 Neverwhere, the biggest thing that changed, which I think was responsible for so much that then went down, was I was meant to be writing forty-two minute episodes, right. and we were up against things like the X Files at that time. Yeah, and all of a sudden the BBC were going, ah, the only model we have for anything like this is Doctor Who, therefore they need to be 28 minutes and shot on video. Right. And suddenly it's a different kind of thing, and you had people then going, I, I don't get it, is it a sitcom? What What are you doing? Yeah. Because this was the mid-90s, and the BBC was still in 1985. Yeah. And you know, I'm still going, but I wrote this thing in 45-minute episodes, and it was meant to be on film, and it's meant to be... It's meant to feel differently. And why is everybody ignoring the things that I've said? I put specific instructions for kinds of clothes that people are wearing and what they look like and stuff in the script and the costume people are ignoring them. And and it was just, it was weirdly frustrating for me. And lots of bits worked and lots of things were great. What was interesting was then, you know, I, I, I didn't write a lot of television, but after writing Neverwhere, I wrote a Babylon 5 episode that I really enjoyed mm-hmm. called The Day of the Dead. Didn't come back to TV until I wrote The Doctor's Wife for Doctor yeah. Who. Yeah. And I loved writing The Doctor's Wife, even though it went through about 11 drafts because yeah. it got bounced from one season to the next. So it had been a Doctor and Amy two-hander and suddenly Rory was in there and, and all of the balance yeah. was different and stuff like that. So I... I you know, I, I had to sort of figure out how to do that. Um, but the director got it. And even though it was going to be expensive and everybody knew it was going to be expensive, 
one of the reasons why it bounced from one season to the next was they couldn't work out a way to make it on the cheap. Right. So they moved it to the next season and took several other episodes out behind the bike sheds and beat them up and took their pocket money. <laughs> um, Amazing. And so that was how it got made. The next time I wrote a Doctor Who episode, it was a Cyberman episode, it wound up being episode, I think, 11 of 12, which meant that by the time they shot it, they were kind of out of money on that season. They were what's called triple banking, which is actors were moving through... They were shooting three episodes simultaneously. Right, yeah. And people were bouncing from one to the other just so they could finish the season. Things that I knew were important from a storytelling point of view were not registered by the people making it in the set. You know, what was great about The Doctor's Wife is, you know, I got a fabulous call from the director just before he went on to the project, and we spent two hours talking wow. through what it was about, how it was going to feel, and, you know, Richard Clark did a fabulous job. With Nightmare and Silver, the director, you know, we... We said hello, yeah. and he went off and directed it. And you know, chunks of it were rewritten by the art department. Chunks of it didn't quite work. Things yeah. there were things in it where I went, you know, I I know that made sense in the script, but why are they doing this? And I go back and look at the script and go, oh no, it made sense. Which is all really, really good, and I'm so glad all of that happened with that episode mm. because. As the writer, I look at the scripts for Nightmare and Silver and the scripts for The Doctor's Wife and go, they're pretty much, they're pretty much of a level. Yeah. They were the same kind of thing. But what we got out the other side, I love The Doctor's Wife. I love some bits of Nightmare and Silver. Yeah. So when it came to making good omens, I had to go, okay. What I've really learned is that it can't stop at being the writer. Yeah. Because when I'm the writer and I hand it over, I may be God, but I'm the least important person the moment it's handed over and I've gone away. Yeah. I'm not there saying, no, you can't do that because you'll mess up the story. And producing entities never look at story. What they look at is you've got a scene here and it will take a day to shoot and it's all in one location. And if we cut that out, then we've saved a day. Yeah. And we've saved a location, and it's not complicated. So, And it's an easy thing to do, because it's a five-page scene, and we'll shoot five pages a day, and so it's gone. Yeah. And me going, if you lose that scene, you lose the entire dramatic arc of what we're doing. It is, it is peculiar now for me looking at episode three of Good Omens. Right. Because episode three, which is the one where the first half of it is just going back through time, there's probably, I don't know, 10 or 11 different locations and times. There isn't one of those that somewhere along the line, some entity involved in producing Good Omens didn't try very hard to cut. Right. And they tried to cut them because... They were cuttable because they're... Well, look, you know, you can lose the World War II church scene. Yeah. It's five pages, it's six actors. You know, why don't we just lose that and we've saved a day and we've saved a day of budget. And yeah. 
And I was really the only one initially, and after that, Douglas McKinnon, the director, once he really got what we what I was doing, who would say, no, you can't do that, because all of this is built like it, it actually, it's a journey. And yeah. if you take out one of these steps on the journey, then the journey will fail. Yeah. And that level of arrogance was incredibly important. Yeah. And that level of being able to say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, which took me into the strangest places because, you know, I'd, I'd have people going, well, you know, if you shoot this scene, it takes us a million quid over budget. You know, we don't have the money to... Uh, the biggest example would be the, the death of Agnes Nutter at the beginning of episode yes. two of Good Omens, where we have to go to this amazing location. We need, you know, hundreds of extras all dressed in period clothes. We need to blow up a lady at the stake and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, the producers were just like, we don't have the money to do this. Could you do it with just sort of a voiceover and woodcuts? Mm. I'm like, that's actually got to happen. And for that one, I remember sitting down with the BBC and with Rob, who's Terry Pratchett's representative on Earth, and going, okay, well, we need a million. How about if we license a, you know, I do a script book and we license a making of Good Omens book. Yeah. And Rob and I agree that all of our share of that would come those two books just go into the production and the BBC agrees that its share of those books would go into the production. And the BBC said, okay, we can do that. And Rob said, I'll do that. And so that's how it came about that two incredibly beautiful books exist. Yeah. And, uh, I love that they exist out out of necessity. They wouldn't exist without the show, but the show wouldn't exist in the form that it is without without them. them. It's a beautiful, yeah. yeah, shared existence there. It's it's a fascinating one because I think you've your career has witnessed a big evolution in writing for TV and for film. In that, for so long, as you've touched upon, the writers were so disrespected. I think it was that I said it was the big. Oh, we love this script; it's the best thing in the world. After that, there's credits being split there's all sorts of other things that weren't really fair or just and the kind of seemingly recent advent of the role of showrunner has seemingly resolved that like the fact that they had to kind of invent a new thing to protect that rather than just say well let's respect the writer it's like no we'll respect the show that's it's just another name for you know the writer now taking that grander control and and being in there well it is when you've got somebody like me, who just wanted to write the whole thing. Mm. You know, the the idea really of a showrunner came about because, and it was that thing even before it was formally named that, was, you know, under the American system where you had a writer's room. Yeah. You had a whole bunch of writers sitting around. All together they plot a season. Often often a different director for each episode as well. Exactly. Um so somebody has to be in charge yeah. of the tone and the overall vision. Yeah. And so for Good Omens, on, on the one hand, I felt kind of like I was getting away with something, being showrunner for my thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm going, no, it, it really is my job to protect protect this vision. And it's, it, it's genuinely, it, it, it's such an important thing. The first American 
TV sh- show I acted on. I was on there for a, a, a couple of months and it blew my mind that all of a sudden there'd be a new director who hadn't seen the previous episodes because they weren't cut yet. They were kind of, particularly in the American way where you're shooting almost as it's airing. So when we were shooting episode five or six, episode one was airing in America and things like that. So yeah. it's really tough to keep that consistency and and, and that linear thread throughout it or t- t- or tonal thread throughout it without someone there to make those arguments. Because, again, equally, I think it's really important if you've cast w- w- well to take on board the tweaks or, and changes of the actors, of the director. If you've, bu- if you've put an amazing team together, then that's an important thing. But they're also potentially going to overlook key parts. I always remember when I, was, I had, had Simon Pegg on and he was, was talking about his Star Trek that he wrote. And quite understandably... Or he had a line in there that just said skip to the end, which is a nod to Spaced, because that was kind of a catchphrase, isn't it? With the American crew and the American actors, they changed that to, or wanted to change that to, uh, let's get on with it, uh, let's move on. Because they're quite rightfully not going to know that that's a key line and a key little Easter egg. Yeah. But with him there, he could say, no, this is important. This isn't something that just can be adapted or thrown away. So, yeah, it's a key thing to have that, that overall... A vision. Do you feel your need to have that control and impact and input on Good Omens was solely because of previous experiences, or was because I know when it was being released, it meant it seemed to mean the world to you that it turned out how it did and it got the reaction it did because you needed to do Terry Proud. Yeah. So do you feel that was a big driving force there, where previously you might have. But buckled in certain situations and things like that, but in this case, it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm the only one here that can 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 take this stand as such. Very much so. Yeah. I didn't feel, and and the truth is, I'm generally speaking much easier to get along with probably than I was making good omens yeah. because I'm generally speaking quite agreeable. If people seem to have a vision and they're going for it, I will trust them. I'll give them notes and advice. But I'm not going to get stompy. And, and mostly what I do is say, good, I, I hope it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, there's, there was one huge plot slash casting thing that's happened to Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is going to be on at the National. Yeah. And I saw a read-through about a month ago when I gave them my notes. And um, they've modified stuff according to the notes but one of my notes still they've said well this, this is how we're doing it and i'm like good i really hope it works yeah you know i don't know that it's going to but but good luck and yeah. that really is genuinely you know, that's how i feel about these things for good omens i didn't have that yeah because i had the ghost of terry pratchett sitting on my shoulder, <laughs> yeah, and he was a grumpy old bugger, and he wasn't going to let me get away with, you know, if I was making this for him, yeah, which I was, I felt like Terry had entrusted me with this thing. We, we tried to find writers for it and showrunners. A lot of very fancy people had said no, mm. and Terry had come to me um, and said, you have to do this. And I said yes, and then Terry died. So now it was, it was a last request. It was this yeah. thing that I had to do. And I felt like I couldn't 
compromise in the the way that I would normally compromise. Yeah. You know, normally my attitude, uh, you know, my attitude to even the Agnes Nutter scene would have been with people coming to me and saying, you just have to do this as, you know, with, with glove puppets or yeah. etchings or whatever. And I would have gone, okay, well, let me, let me take that away and see if I can make it work. Yeah. And with this, it was just like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. That was Terry's scene and, he would have wanted to see it like this, so yeah. I'm making it for him like this. Was that a, a nice nil to get to embody for you to get to be kind of like, no, I'm going to be. Uh, there's going to be no give and take in this in this scenario. It was odd because I haven't had to be him yeah. very often. Yeah. Normally, I'm perfectly happy to make something and then to hand it over to people and to step aside and. You know, even going back to when I was doing comics, for me, writing comics and making comics was all about trying to inspire the artist to walk with my vision. You know, I I wasn't getting bossy. It wasn't saying, well, Mm. you know, you don't do that. It was, you know, I remember with with one Sandman storyline, I just didn't feel like the artist quite got how to draw Morpheus. Everything else was great, but Morpheus wasn't. So each issue, when I'd write the script, I'd try and push them more toward... And I'd just describe him more, and I'd talk more about how you draw Morpheus, and I'd talk yeah. more about how he looks and stuff like that, which actually meant that by that artist's last issue of Sandman, he drew an iconic Morpheus who's been used in images ever since. Amazing. Um... But a lot of it was just about inspiring and guiding and leading and just, you know, and at the same time, you're also trying to do the Roadrunner thing, the yeah. Wiley Coyote thing. You're trying to just run across from Mesa to Mesa through the air without looking down and hope that the people will follow you and not look down. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you've touched upon um, all the elements in Good Omens and wanting it to be, be perfect. As soon as casting announcements started coming out, it was clear that there was such a good team put together on this with David Tennant and Michael Sheen, but Francis McDormand, John Hamm, Jack Whitehall, Michael McKean, Brian Cox, Nick Hoffman, a Jade Adams, sorry, who's a friend of mine, was like so excited and shocked to come out of nowhere and get this little moment in there. And she said that she felt that you really helped her so much and championed her and guided her in, 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 in her character and her role. So how was that, putting it all together? And before you're even getting into the, the business side of this, the almost arguments of making it on screen how it needs to be, how was that the kind of the putting together? Because these, these are characters who have existed on paper for a long time, but not f- physically in the real world. So it's it's where you led that artist to produce the perfect Morpheus, um, you've now, you're finally having to find or create the perfect character in each, in each spot. It was really interesting. Um, there were places where I knew what I was doing in casting mm-hmm. and places where I had to hope. Yeah. And some of the places where I had to hope worked and a few of them didn't, but most of them really did. But we had two really good things that kind of set the tone. And one of them was a conversation that I'd had with Terry Pratchett in 
1989, maybe 1990, when we were talking about who we would cast as Crowley and Aziraphale. Right. And it was really just trying to get in our heads what perfect casting would be. Yeah. And either Terry or I, and I don't remember now, said, of course, the best possible casting would be the late Peter Sellers in both roles. Amazing. And that threw <laughs> something amazing. into clarity for me, because I thought, actually, if I could cast anybody in time and space as Crowley and Aziraphale, I would have a, you know, Peter Sellers in dark glasses in his mid-30s being slick, and probably a Peter Sellers with blonde hair in his early 40s, late 30s, you know, that kind of, as Aziraphale, and and you'd get that, and you get that feeling that they could be the other one, and yeah. you get a weird feeling of reflection. And it was that that meant that I'd originally had my heart set on Michael Sheen for Crowley. I was writing episode three of Good Omens when I realised that I wanted David Tennant. I was just writing the scene in the church where he comes down the aisle and is bouncing around going yeah. ow, 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 ow. It's like being at the beach in bare feet, consecrated ground. And I suddenly thought, oh, you know, David Tennant could do this. Because you're writing a scene which is physical comedy, and there was no physical comedy up to that point. But I thought, I need somebody who's control of their body. And I could suddenly imagine David Tennant doing it. I couldn't get that out of my head. And by the end, I remember sending all the scripts to Michael Sheen and going to dinner with him. And Michael had read the script and couldn't imagine himself as Crowley. Right. And was trying to come up with a way of saying, I don't want to be Crowley. And I had long since decided that I wanted him as a Xerophel, and basically written a Xerophel for Michael anyway. Yeah. Because I love the man. I, yeah. I, I think there's something about Michael. There is this goodness and purity and radiance that comes through. And, of course, as somebody who has this level of goodness and purity and radiance, he always plays these characters with sort of, you know, hard outer shells with whom there is something slightly wrong. Yeah. So you feel, you know, he would have been obvious for Crowley. Yeah. yeah. Except that I wanted that level of goodness. And David, I just thought, David could give me that Crowley. And Michael was incredibly relieved. I'm not sure if he said, look, Neil, I can't play Crowley. And I actually said, which is good because I want you to play Aziraphale. But that was basically the conversation <laughs> yeah. we had. And he was like, oh, okay. So I got that bit of the casting right. I had to fight long and hard to get David as Crowley only because everybody else looked at those two and went, well, they're, they're so similar. Can you, could we have somebody different? Maybe mm. somebody American. Maybe somebody who's this. Maybe somebody who's that. And I was like, no, give me David. I know that this Michael David thing will work. I want them similar. I want them, you know, they'd never actually been in any, they'd never acted together before. And they'd never acted together before we discovered on talking to them because they always go up for the same part. Yeah. Because you have the finest Welsh actor of his generation, the finest Scottish actor of his generation. They're both similar. Yeah. But the other part that actually fixed everything that was going wrong for me right in the very beginning was Sister Mary Loquacious. Right. Nina, Nina Shasanya. Yeah. And Nina was a Good Omens fan. 
she read Good Omens once a year. Wow. That was her comfort reading. It was her yeah. book that she loved. I was getting the first week's worth, the first ten days' worth of audition tapes mm. were coming in, and they were awful. They, were, or, or they weren't awful, they were just wrong. Nothing felt like Good Omens, nothing felt right, and I could not quite articulate what was wrong with them. Right. And then Nina auditioned for Sister Mary, and it was right. It was perfect. It was dead on. And watching her, and it was really funny. Yeah. And I suddenly realized that all of the people up to that point from whom I had seen audition tapes had been told it was a comedy and were doing comedy acting. Right. And Nina, who knew and loved Good Omens, played Sister Mary utterly straight. Yeah. As a result of which, it was really funny. Yeah. That's the best comedy most of the time. If you're not playing for comedy. And it's, it's harder because, again, yeah. it, it, particularly if there's humour in the script and things like that, you want to play these comedy lines. But the best is always when it's played as straight as possible and, and you let the writing do the job, not the, the, uh, the, the delivery. That, so that, being able to point at that and then say to the casting director, OK, that thing Nina's done where she's played it completely straight. Yeah. I just want that. Yeah. And suddenly it, like, brought something into focus. Yeah. And all of the casting, there were several places after that where we would, it would come down to a choice between two actors. Yeah. And one of them could nail the jokes and they were always perfectly timed and really funny. And one of them could nail the emotional freight and get it real. And I would go, okay, well, let's go for the emotional freight guy. It's, it's fascinating to hear because in the build-up and even having watched the whole series in a short amount of time, I wouldn't have thought this is... I wouldn't have put it under comedy. I don't know what I would have put it under, but, but comedy wasn't... It's bizarre to hear that that was kind of the outlook originally of here's this comedy script. Well, it was being made by the BBC. You know, it was un under the auspices of the head of comedy. And it was a funny script, so yeah. people went, ah. It's, it's one of the problems, I think, with... I think TV is going in an amazing direction, but it's coming out of the previous direction that's the tough bit. The fact that they're at Channel 4... Because I'm, I'm working on numerous scripts myself and having success in some places and not in others, but a regular problem with the BBC, with Channel 4, of everyone is, is it the comedy department or the drama department? And... Yeah. So many of the best scripts, it's like my argument is always, well, has your day-to-day been comedy or drama? Most of the time, hopefully it's a decent mix of of the two. So it's such a weird thing. I understand how it has to be like that, but it's such a weird thing. Again, if it's the fact that because the casting call was coming from BBC comedy, you know, it's seen as, as a comedy, whereas I think it's far more layered than simply it's a comedy. The finest piece of slapstick comedy I have ever seen was on an aeroplane when a flight attendant took a step back, bonked an overhead locker with her head. It came down. Everything in it (laughs) flew everywhere. No harm was done, but it was just this sort of perfect piece of slapstick of people having to... It was just funny. And I was on my way to a funeral, and my heart was so broken at the time, and I was just so sad, and I'm watching this thing. And I thought, you know, I would not dare to put this in a script 
Uh, but actually, real life doesn't follow genre rules, exactly. and real life will give you your humor, you know, at the time when you're saddest, and it will give you, you know, you you, you think you're in a really important sort of crime story, and then suddenly it's pornography. <laughs> for half an hour or whatever. You know, your yeah. life does not follow genre rules. Yeah. We Also, the other thing is, of course, Good Omens was made by the Amazon comedy department because yeah. the drama department said no. Wow. And the yeah. BBC, bless them, rather than give up on Amazon, showed the scripts to comedy and they were like, yes, we love this. This is perfect. I, I love it. I've, I've, I've not told you this, but, um, I'm, I mean, I've said, I, I was, was lucky enough to audition for this for, 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 for good omens and it's one of the four kind of breakthrough moments or breakthrough auditions I've had and the reason is this I it was one that I went in and I didn't think I'd nailed it which again arrogantly the majority of my castings I really feel pleased with because I know what I want to do mm-hmm. and I know that that's all you can play for you yeah. can't play for anything other than that as long as I go, go in and know I nailed what I was trying to do, then it's in, in someone else's hands. But this was one that I came away and I wasn't quite happy with. But when I heard I hadn't got the part, it was the first time I got genuine excitement because at that point I'd done a couple of films, a couple of TV shows, and each one I thought I'd learned s- s- so much. And I had this moment of just, oh my God, imagine how much better I'm going to be when we finally do work together and when the right project comes. And I've never had that. And it's been such a breakthrough in castings because it kind of makes you invincible. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't get this role you really want, you're like, well, the next time one comes around, imagine how much better I'm going to be. And it's interesting to hear, having heard you say, you know, I failed many times over the years. and I've, I was doing things wrong and I've done, you know, it's all those learning things to get there. You and this was to. a huge one for, for me in that respect. I, you know, I look at actors though, as having a level of bravery. When I write something and people don't like it, that's fine. Some people like it, some people don't. Yeah. But I don't ever take it personally. You know, yeah. I can get a lousy review when I don't go, well, I have any personal failings in this. It's not about me. It's about you didn't like this kind of story. Whatever. Actors have to put themselves on the line every day mm. in auditioning they don't know what we're looking for. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know what we're looking for until we see it. And a lot of the time, the thing that makes us choose one actor over another, it is that thing that I was saying with, with, where you look at it and you go, oh my God, you're brilliant. You have nailed every joke. Mm. You've, you've actually given me exactly the performance that I wanted you're kind of weird and actually you've kind of flubbed all the jokes, but you've given me an emotional thing that I didn't know was in those lines. And I want to see what you do with that next. And I'm going with you. And I remember Neverwhere auditioning people. All I wanted to do was call up everybody I'd seen. And back then it wasn't videos. You weren't being sent videos on the web. You were sitting in an office and people yeah. would, were coming in and doing it for you. I wanted to apologize to everybody who didn't get cast yes. personally and explain to them why they hadn't got cast, explain that it wasn't their fault, 
and explain what they did right and yeah. why they were great, but why we picked somebody else instead of the. And of course, you can't and you don't. Yeah. But it's so odd. And I, I think that there has to be a level of, in order for the acting to be a real thing, there has to be a level of vulnerability. Yeah. And I look at the actors in Good Omens who were willing to audition for us. Sean Brooke auditioned for us. Yeah. Danny Mays auditioned for us. You yeah. know, they, they sent in their tapes or they came yeah. into the office and, and were videoed. And I'm like, really? You know, most of these people would could run a series. Yeah. And yeah. there they were just coming in and, you know, pick one of these three. And fortunately, um, I am generally face blind. Yeah. So all I do when I get three videos is I go, oh, this one is, this one is the thing that I'm looking for. Whatever yeah, this this yeah. weird thing that I'm looking for is, I think I'm going to get it from this person. It's, I mean, it's, it's one of the beautiful things. There's Andy Nyman wrote an amazing book of advice to, to actors, and I think there's tons in that that's good for cast. But one of the things you, you've said there is that often you don't know exactly what you're looking for, so it's not like you're competing with it's it's not like michael and david competing for the same role it could be a a million people and i think that can be a really powerful thing for more actors to realize i had one a while ago an hbo series that i really wanted and i really nailed this this scene um it was one where i was i'd got to the point where i was in auditioning with the director there and we really had a chat and understood the character the guy who got the role started acting i think i calculated as 46 years before i was born and it's like well i can't you can't that's so different you know i mean you can't be hurt or damaged or or feel rejected when it's you know we were never the the same thing so that's i think it's a massively powerful thing to to get you through these things as as an actor to know that it's just you're not actually in competition with a version of you and they've done slightly better you're in competition with something completely different so it's you can't compete having said that i remember once being with a friend of mine in new york when she was going for a commercial audition yeah and it was an incredibly salutary and weird experience just sitting in this hallway as uh women who could have been my friend came and sat down and men who all looked basically like the same guy, Mm. were coming in and sitting down and being called into different offices for the auditions. And I felt it was that sudden moment where I thought, well, hang on, if it was me that they were casting for, they could have a, you know, they could be 20 or 30 people who look (laughs) and sound more or less exactly like me in um, sitting on these these seats it was there was a kind of and that was commercial audition it yeah. wasn't it wasn't like if, if, if the competition wasn't there it'd be an amazing place to make friends absolutely <laughs> here's someone that's going to be really like me we're going to get on there's going to be such a, a, a connection here here's you <laughs> here's five versions of you um yeah i, I think it's a fascinating and, 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 and weird world but it's exciting it's exciting all the changes in it it's exciting the Everything's kind of changing endless, right now. Endless p- 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 potential that's out there in in those worlds, in TV and film. Oh, what do you feel, kind of, between TV and film 
adaptations of your work even because again you've 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 had it all along the way um it's a tough one because as I said film adaptations five years ago are different to film adaptations now tv adaptations five years ago are different tv now, right now is something weird i've compared it a few times to a gold rush yeah i was in comics when it was a bubble there was a point in 1991, 92, 93, when there was a, you know, the equivalent of the South Sea bubble, the equivalent of the tulip madness was going on in comics. And I was just looking around going, well, hang on, this isn't real. Mm. We still only have 800,000 comics readers, and now you're just selling those 800,000 people multiple copies of the same comic, and that won't work, and then failed and yeah. comic shops went out of business and it was it was a bad thing this isn't that but what's going on right now is kind of a gold rush in that all of a sudden the streamers know have budgets like the television networks around the world never had that's important what the streamers want they're starting to realize is more actually novelistic unless episodic because of in, the binge culture that's in the you have binge culture what used what you used to be trying to provide people with was an episode a week in a perfect episode of anything you don't need to have seen any other episodes you're sitting down you may spend a little time figuring out okay these are the good guys and those are the bad guys but it's buffy the vampire slayer you've never seen buffy before it's season three Here's a great episode. And by the end of the episode, the monster of the week has been defeated. Yeah. Yeah. Even if there's an ongoing ticking storyline that you're, you're becoming aware of in which things are still moving. And, and that would have applied to anything. You know, ER, mm. even though it's an ongoing thing, there is a storyline yeah. that will run through this episode and it will have concluded in this episode. I, I watched a... A friend of mine who is a TV genius go out and pitch a series to all of the streamers and I thought, well, obviously, he will sell this thing. Mm. And everybody said no. And I, I talked to him afterwards. I said, well, why did they say no? And he said, well, because it was network television. Wow. It was an episode of the week. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, the, the, in which case, the drive right now is the same kind of engine that runs, you know, that runs a novel. It's not that they are novels. Yeah, a novel yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, a, is a specific thing that does things. Cool. But it is that thing where you want people to binge and mm. there are all of these driving algorithms that Netflix and Amazon and so on and so forth all have now. Where it's like, right, well, you need to keep people watching for the first five minutes. If you've got them for the first five minutes, then you have them for episode one. Yeah. You want them, which means that at the end of episode one, you need to keep them watching. The next most important place is the end of episode two. The next most important place is halfway through episode three. If you have them halfway wow. through episode three, then you have them for the series. But you have to get them to halfway through episode three. And it's sort of like going, oh, okay. This is really interesting. None of this information was there when I was writing Good Omens. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the way that I'm thinking about things right now, I don't think it particularly changes anything. Yeah. 
But it does mean that I understand that the driving force of this kind of television has to be you are telling a big story. Yeah. And that big story, even though a specific problem may get solved within an episode, it can't feel so satisfyingly episodic yeah. that you get to the end of an episode and you go, well, that was good. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Again, I find all this stuff just fascinating to observe and watch as much as anything, to see these changes and, and developments. I was, I was lucky enough to work with Stephen Knight, who I think is a great writer for TV. Um, and one of the things that I loved from talking to him was that he was insistent on looking at it as a as a whole piece in, in that kind of manner of saying, I'm going to have slow builds on a lot of stuff. I'm not going to have your traditional everything happens in the first episode to try and have that, that big impact. Stuff is going to happen. It's important, but I'm not going to let that lead my story. The story will build and be this amazing thing. And I think that's it's exciting that we're at a point now where, as you say, people will give things three episodes and then decide if they're going to watch it. I mean, that's mad. That's three hours and then decide if they like it. Like before they even decide, that's kind of exciting. But having said that, there's also weird downsides to that. For example, good example of a weird downside, making a film. Yeah. Let's say you're making a film in the old days. If you were writing a film script, you have 15 pages of a film script. You've got the first 15 minutes to do whatever you want with. Because in that first 15 minutes, you're assuming that your audience have got up, they've driven or walked or taken the tube to a cinema, they bought a ticket, they bought their popcorn, they're sitting down, they're comfy, and they're watching your film. And they're probably going to give it 15 minutes before they go this is crap, I'm walking out. It's inconvenient to stop watching. (laughs) Yeah. So you actually have that period of time, or you used to have that period of time, as a lovely sort of build lead-in. You could tell a bit of a story over here, knowing that you'll come back to it. Um, A film, let me think of a film, The Crying Game, Yeah. where you start out with a thing happening that actually, you know, then... After 10 minutes of this, you're going to come to a completely different place and a completely new story and yeah. stuff. But you can, you can do that. Um, yeah. Pulp Fiction or whatever. You can point to lots of films where you're allowed your slow build or you're allowed to start with other characters, you're allowed any of that kind of stuff. Now, if you're making a film, it's probably being funded by a Netflix or yeah. an Amazon or whatever. Yeah. You're making a film that's being funded by a streamer. They are very aware of what all television has been aware of really since the arrival of the remote control. Yeah. Which is you are one blip away yeah. from something else happening. And, you know, television has never gone for the, the genuine slow build. We're going to start this show with, you know, the sun rising, and it's going to be rising for two minutes and then the thing is going to happen. Yeah. Because, you know, you can you can get away with that in a cinema, but before you get 45 seconds in, somebody's going to go, sun's still rising? Yeah, okay, let's see what else is on. Yeah. And 
or at this point, let's let's go back to the main menu and look for, look at something else. Yeah. So you're immediately reshaping the way that we tell stories. Mm. But having said that, there's something fundamentally artificial about the film. Yeah. For example, the idea of it's 120 minutes long, it's two hours long. Well, why is it two hours long? Well, it's two hours long because of the number of reels that we used to have, of what you could get onto a reel, of yeah. how long it's that long because of how many screenings you want to be able to do in a cinema during the day for the people who own the cinema to fill it and get their money back. Yeah. You, It's that long because budget. It's that long because other things. The idea of being able to tell stories at six hours or 10 hours or 14 hours or 20 hours. Yeah. That's, that's new. Yeah. Again, it, it, it makes me think instantly of the variation along your career where you've been b- b- bold enough, I feel, to let the story dictate what it is that you're writing and I'll explain as in mm-hmm. whether it's a novella or whether it's a short or whether it's a novel rather than going, well, I've written it, but it's about 40 pages too short or about 30 pages too short. I need to write more. You've been quite happy to go, no, that's, that's the length of it. That's, that's what it is. Has that, has, particularly has that- for, a, you know, ocean at the end of the lane. Yeah. I remember starting it and going, I'm writing a short story. Yeah. And then after a week or so going, well, it's obviously a, a novelette. Yeah. And then a week or so after that going, it's a novella. <laughs> and sending an email around to my publishers saying, I seem to have written, I'm, 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 I'm in the process of writing a long novella. Sorry about this. I know they're really hard to publish. And then getting to the end and doing a word count and going, oh, well, it's 56,000 words. That's technically a novel. Yeah. You know, The Great Gatsby is 40,000 words. Yeah. It's 16,000 words longer than Gatsby. Um, <laughs> and just... Letting everybody know, I, I appear to have written a novel, guys. This is unexpectedly, I'm yeah. sorry about this. And, yeah. Um, I would have loved it to have been another 12,000 words. Everybody would have felt a lot more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. At, it, would no, it wouldn't have been a thin book yeah. at 12,000 words. But you know, the, the, the weirdness of all this for me is, you know, I started in comics and the thing now of the assumption that things are going to be turned into graphic novels. Uh-huh. That wasn't a thing. There had been a handful, a tiny handful of books that had come out that were written as limited series that came out as graphic novels. No ongoing series were ever collected as graphic yeah, novels. That, that didn't happen. With Sandman, the first storyline was eight issues long. Because I knew that by issue eight, they've got the sales results in. Right, yeah. For (laughs) the first, you know, four or five months. And what I was, at that point in time, DC Comics, for reasons of pride, would let things go for a year and cancel things at issue 12. Right. So I knew that issue eight is the point where they phone you up and say, we're cancelling you but you've got four issues to wrap it up in. So I plotted an eight-issue storyline, the idea being that I could do some short stories after that, expecting that I would get a phone call yeah. at Sandman 8 saying, well, 
you know, it's been a minor critical success and a complete commercial failure. And please, you know. But that wasn't what happened. What happened was it was a critical success and a ridiculous commercial success by the standards of what it was up against. Mm. Um, You know, it wasn't a commercial success at that time against X-Men or or Spider-Man, but compared to anything similar, it was, Mm. you know, Swamp Thing or whatever. It, It was doing fantastically, which meant that I then carried on and did another eight-issue series because that felt right. And, that, you know, I'd just done one of that shape and it was, yeah. I, I figured out how to pace myself. Yeah. So once, very rapidly, they put the first two books out as graphic novels. We had two eight-episode graphic novels and, and they worked. Yeah. And they were the right size and they felt solid. And... You know, we and we'd done something that nobody had done before. This thing now, the idea that we were, I was doing an ongoing comic and every time I finished a storyline, it would be available as a graphic novel. That was a whole yeah. paradigm that now is absolutely taken for granted. Completely assumed, yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a weird one because this is another one. It, I, I feel like I'm giving these big uh, reveals of key moments you've had in my life. But... um Sandman's another one that I've got a, a weird relationship with because it's the first graphic novel I ever owned. I'm a massive comic book fan. To this day, I'm yet to read it, but the reason is I was given it by, at the time, my first love, and a week later, she cheated on me with my best friend. So it became... And it's again, it's all fine. Yeah. I'm friends with different people now. We're all, all grown-ups. These things happen in youth. But because of that, it was this thing that I was like, oh, I can't wait to read this. And then it was tarnished for so long. And now it's become a kind of, I need to read it at the right... It's Now it's an exciting thing, but it's this one that's always been the first on my shelf. And there's yeah. eight shelves now, and it's like, the time is going to come for it, but it still hasn't. So it's weird to have that strange... Because it's one that, again, is known... Whenever you talk about being a fan of comics or graphic novels, it's it's one that's listed in there as this, you know, one you have to read. So, Yeah. Strangely personal. I read this article this morning by Martin Scorsese about, in the New York Times, trying to clarify and explain that thing that he said about, you know, for him, Marvel movies not being cinema. And I wound up, you know, expecting to continue my sort of, if not high dudgeon, then at least low dudgeon against Martin Scorsese. And then I read it, and I thought, hang on. What he is saying here is actually... What Alan Moore and me and Bill Sienkiewicz and Dave McKean, all of us were saying about comics in the 80s and the early 90s, where we were looking around at a landscape of superhero stuff and going, it can be more than this, which is not to denigrate superheroes in any way. Look, Dark Knight Returns is superheroes, Watchmen superheroes. That's not actually what we're saying. What we're saying is you've got a medium here that you can do anything in, and we're doing stories about people in costumes thumping each other through walls and getting up and saying, now you've made me really angry. And it can be more than this. And, you know, Sandman was my effort to demonstrate that it could be more than this. Um, Violent Cases, Mr. Punch, they were my efforts to demonstrate it could be more than this. And suddenly I'm I'm going, oh, I'm actually, I think I'm on your side on this. 
you're not saying there shouldn't be these films. You're saying there should be all this other stuff too. Yeah. And that was all we were ever saying. Yeah. And in order to prove it, we had to make it. Yeah, completely. It's, it's fascinating how defensive and how people have to t- take sides so much in modern society. Because when I heard that, as a fan of comic books and as a fan of the big superhero films, all of these things, I saw that quote and I thought, this is disgraceful. And then I actually read it and I was like, there's nothing here that's actually as scandalous as it's making out. Uh, I'd like cl- clarity, which he then then gave in this recent article. But I was like, yeah, I was like, what he's actually said, it's not much of an argument against. It's obviously these things are things of taste, but still, he's not saying they shouldn't exist and they're all shit or anything like that. He's saying it's not the cinema that kind of the, the interpretation I kind of got was comic books shouldn't be the genre. You know, within comic book, as you and Alan and everyone else showed, there can be... Hundreds of genres, so much variation. It shouldn't simply be, it's a comic book movie, and that's that. It's like, well, what kind? One of, more. one of the things that I loved best about comics, one of the things that probably spoiled me as a creator for the rest of my creative existence, was comics are a medium that is mistaken for a genre. Yeah. Yeah, perfectly perfect. The, the medium of comics... It, it's a glass, it's a bottle, it's a jar. You can put anything in that jar. You yeah. can put anything in the bottle. And what was great about doing Sandman was because it was a medium mistaken for a genre. The same was true of doing Miracle Man. The same was true of doing the graphic novels. Nobody would ever say to me, well, you, you can't do this, this gangster story. You can't do this historical, or you can't do this love story you can't do this weird thing because you know you're in the middle of a science fiction story and you've just done a children's story Mm. (laughs) um because it was all comics so it was in people's head it was its own genre anyway yeah you know i i'm always fascinated by the the human tendency to put things into boxes Mm. yeah i was i was talking to armistead mopan um the author the other day i was i got to interview Armistead at the Royal Festival Hall, and we were talking about the fact that in the States, Armistead is perceived as a gay author and shelved on the gay shelves. In the UK, he is perceived as an American author. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he's shelved on the American shelves, which for me, you know, I think the nearest I ever get to that is in the US, I am never, but never, regarded as a Jewish author. Right. Because I'm an English author. Yeah. And you can't be in two boxes at the same time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm an English author. Yeah. And it's that thing where you're going, you know, hanging out with Michael Chabon, who we discovered through 23andMe I'm actually related to. Oh, wow. And I'm going... You get to be a Jewish author. Yeah. I get to be an English author. Yeah. It's all boxes. Um, The human, you know, people love just putting things into categories. And human beings being weird and complicated will immediately do their best to escape and will not fit in any of your boxes. Bits of us will will insist on poking out and being awkward and just not fitting. It's fascinating because, again, it's... I mean, we've talked about religion and the confusing 
the confusion of labels, it makes me think instantly that you you were prepared from an early age for this not being able to be easily listed because of your own upbringing with faith and 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 religion because Scientology was 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 in there and obviously you're of, of Jewish um, heritage and whatnot and but from well, what I know that you, got you've most... never been kind of. Well, what was great... You've been comfortably apart from all of these things, but... Well, what I was going to say is what was great was going to a high church, Church of England school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then promptly being the kid who would win the religious studies prize and yeah. stuff like that. But everything for me felt like alien mythology. Yeah. It always felt like alien mythology. Yeah. Um you know, and it felt like alien mythology. And then having spent, you know, childhood in high church, Church of England schools, feeling alien and not like this, is, this isn't actually me. You know, coming up to London every weekend at, from about 11 and a half until almost 13, staying with, with Jewish relatives and being taught, my Hebrew and being taught my mufta and my half Torah and yeah. learning because, uh, you know, I'm going to be bar mitzvah. And discovering then that actually I'm sort of going, well, on the one hand, I have very little interest in parts of this, but I am absolutely obsessed by the, um, by the Midrash. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by Judaism as collection of oral myths that are not in the Bible, but are part of the the tradition that has accreted to it and the explanations that go along with it. Uh, You know, Adam had three wives. Eve was the third. And you're going, well, yes, in the Bible it just mentions Eve, but obviously... Yeah. There's there's Lilith there's and and you've also got the one that didn't get a name and then you've got the original concept of because you have the line you know male and female created he them um, the idea of of you know Adam Cadman the the original Ad, Adam who is back to back male and female as one entity that right, had to yeah. then be split and you've got all of this wonderful stuff and because. I had a, you know, hardcore, ultra-Orthodox bar mitzvah teacher. For him, none of these things were story. Yeah. All of them were the world. And I would sit and listen to the stories of... In fact, I wouldn't just sit and listen. I, I knew that all I needed to do was prod him in the right direction... And he would tell me the story of what would happen uh, at the end of the world when, when the behemoth was slain and the Leviathan was brought up from the deeps and was also slain. And, um, you know, the men would sit around eating and the women would be in the back preparing the food and having babies. And because the, this was this sort of strange eternity of... of a banquet that would never end. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, sounds like some kind of nightmare. And then I'm thinking, so what would happen if you were like an astronaut and you'd been up in space 
and you came back and this thing had happened and actually you're having this sort of ongoing eternal appalling heaven on earth and you know age 12 i may not have had the chops to write that story yeah but i'm sitting there with it all i never did write that story um but (laughs) but it's definitely part of the way that i was seeing the world as going okay well people believe things and many of the things that people believe there are there are the things that you're actually dealing with the, you know, like tables are solid and you put things on the table and they won't fall to the ground. Yeah. But you've also got all of the stuff that people believe that are the ways that they see the world. In American Gods, I describe religion as fundamentally a place to stand yeah. and look at the world. Yeah. And I think I still believe that. It's, it's, a, it's a place to stand. And I think I just read too much fantasy and too much science fiction as a kid. And just... Too many ideas in there and too many places to stand. I'm like, okay, I don't actually need to stand in any of your places. It's okay. And I love that all of these people believe all these things. I'm, you know, I have I have friends who are proper skeptics and proper hardline, you know, people who, who who, as far as they're concerned, it is bad that people believe all these goofy things and not so goofy, but you know, and ways that they used to see the world. I don't think it's bad. I love the, the variety of humanity. I love the weirdness I couldn't of agree humanity. More. I love it. I, I had a, a song called Letter from God to Man, and a lot of people assumed because I'd written that it was anti-religion, half presumed it was pro-religion, and it wasn't either. It was just using it, because I certainly had, a, had a, a, a Roman Catholic upbringing, I don't particularly believe any of it now, but I'm not against it either. It's just these fascinating frameworks to put into storytellings. And it makes sense with Good Omens, because it's a similar thing there. And then one of the best things, I mean, you're always looking at ways to make marketing work and feel organic. And one of the best things that you guys had when that released was the person who was campaigning to make Netflix stop <laughs> the religious fanatic who was campaigning to, to make Netflix stop cancel making it, it. Yes. cancel it. It's not on Netflix, and Amazon re- reacted amazingly, <laughs> and then Netflix reacted saying, "Well, we'll cancel this if you cancel that." And yeah, it was just a wonderful bit of natural bonkersness that then gets loads of attention because it I, goes honestly viral. It went. It went honestly viral. We could not have made it up. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. kind of wonderful, so and the best thing about that for me was you sort of go, okay, well, apparently 20,000 people have signed this petition. All I know about those 20,000 people is none of them have seen my show. (laughs) So none of them, none of the people petitioning are actually petitioning against something that they've seen. Yeah. Um, I love it. And that, I thought, was a fascinating thing. Uh, You know, if I could have sent them flowers, I would have done. Yeah. Or if I could have sent them flowers or chocolates without it actually seeming sarcastic. Yeah. I would have done because they did us a huge favor. They, you know, the story went viral worldwide. The best bit about it going viral worldwide was it told everybody, not just that there was this thing that people didn't like and they didn't like it because it had the voice of Francis McDormand as God and they didn't like it because Adam and Eve were black. They hadn't got further than that. Um, But they also, it also told everybody where to see it. 
yeah. which was great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. The point of the story is where it's actually on. So that's yeah, ideal marketing. And so you know, you've got all these all around the world. Every every radio show and TV show that where they ask people funny questions yeah. about that week's news, they'd stick that one in. It's it perfect. was lovely. Um, I'll start to wrap things up. I feel as if we could. Talk oh, forever. I, I was going to say, it feels like we've only just started. And, and, and there's, there's, there's two things on my list that I, I feel we need to get in. And one of them is simply kind of a, a an aside of the last time that we met. Because it was such a wonderful and unusual scenario that I was side stage at one of Amanda's sh- sh- shows. And I was about to go on and perform with Amanda, having only met her once, having never met the band. But yep. we thought, let's just do it. And then I... I saw you there and said a quick hello and I was excited to meet you. And then I did my thing, then came off. And as we came to the end, um, Richard O'Brien took the stage to perform Time Warp with the band. And you were heading on stage to join in and you grabbed me and pulled me on with you. So there's you, me, Richard O'Brien, Amanda Palmer, all these different people all doing the Time Warp on stage in Coco, completely unexpected and unplanned. So it was... It was one of those true moments of what you were saying earlier. You couldn't write that. It was one of those where I was like, yeah, I couldn't have predicted this. This just is the natural things that happen and unfold. When people ask me, as they don't, why are you married to Amanda Palmer? Because nobody actually ever asked a question like that. Uh, the fact that, you know, I now have a life in which things like that can happen yeah. um, is, I think, part of that. But also, to go back, I mean, what I love about that as a callback is that day we got to Coco, Amanda and I, and as we got to Coco, Amanda was checking her messages and burst into tears. And I said, what's happened? And a friend of ours was dead. She was young. We didn't know how she died. I kind of assume suicide, but it's one of those things where it's never been... The family have never said, all we know is that she was there and then she wasn't there anymore. And I took Amanda upstairs to her dressing room and just held her till she stopped crying. And there was 25 minutes of crying. And she was um, our friend Becca, who, who I'd met the first time I met Amanda properly. And she'd been... And at the time, I thought she was just this sort of slightly weird. She was incredibly drunk at the time, was <laughs> 22 or 23, and announcing that because she could pass for 15 or 16, she planned to go back into high school and teach, pretending masquerading as a 15 or 16-year-old and, and lead everyone to deliverance. Um, and then I... I you, Got to know her. I cast her in a film of mine as a, as a living statue. Um, she was brilliant. She wanted to be a librarian, and suddenly she wasn't there anymore. And so that was going on for me and Amanda at the same time that, whoa, you know, Richard O'Brien has just shown up, and wow. he's going to be doing something on stage, and it's going to be the time warp, and yeah. this is the most amazing thing and and what a what a fabulous um evening and meeting you and yeah. dragging you onto the stage and going you know we can't miss this we i can't, can't do this it has to be on our you know because it's on anybody's bucket list is of course 
Um, it now seems ludicrous that I was happily standing side stage to watch. It was such a wonderful way to go, oh, right, yeah, this should be something that should be happening. <laughs> and we got to be part of that. Wow. And life doesn't fall into any kind of genre. Mm. And there you go. In the middle of the sorrow, you get the joy. And in yeah. the middle of the joy, you get the sorrow. And it's okay. It's like, you know, life is a great big veiny cheese. Yeah. And it's all, you get it all. It's beautiful. And it, it, it leads perfectly onto the final thing I wanted to discuss. And it's, it's fatherhood. Because both you and Amanda are incredibly busy, incredibly driven, incre- incredibly creative people. And in those worlds, parenthood in general is often something that can be pushed aside and said it's it's not the right time. Like the right time is such a, a loose, a loose thing. But as you've just said that, you know, there's there's ways of making every, everything work. So, so how do you guys find it? Because from everything I see from a distance, you've got a wonderful b- balance. I can't even imagine it considering I know the surface of how much you do and the surface of how much Amanda does, yet you seem to find that, that balance of, of making it work as two creatives rather than just one creative and, you know. I think we do okay. We, 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 we you know, you're juggling eggs and every now and then an egg hits the floor. Yeah. And also I'm, you know, I am fortunate in the fact that I earn enough money that we can have help. Yeah, yeah. And because if it was just the two of us and if we didn't have lovely nanny people and babysitters and people who could just spot us, it would be impossible. But, you know, I, I love Amanda came home early. And by early, I mean, she got home today at 630 in the morning yes. um, because she wanted to see Ash before he went to school. And Ash and I were both up when she got here, and I made him breakfast, got him dressed, played with him, and headed out and took him, you know, got on the bus, and we went on to school, and uh, dropped him off at school, as I always do. And I love the fact that this is my... You know, it's every bit as important as the phone calls with... Amazon or getting an award or doing any of that kind of stuff is just make the time for Ash. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lucky. This is my second time at parenthood and you're always, if you're a creative person doing this thing, going to have to balance what you're doing and, and parenthood. I remember for American gods, where I knew the only way that I would get this monster book written Mm. was to go away and get it started. I went off from sort of January to Easter and stayed in Florida. And Maddie, my daughter, would have been about six. And what we did was every night, without fail, I would phone and read to her for 40 minutes. And um, we'd try and make sure that we both had copies of the same book so she could turn the pages as I was reading. I love it, yeah. But it was, you know, it was before video conferencing, it was before any of that kind of stuff, but it meant that I would always check in with her, talk about her day, be there for her, and then I'd just read to her. 
And even then, I knew it wasn't optimum. I would rather have been there. So we'd make it work, Amanda and I. And we'd do it. You know, she was great while I was making Good Omens. She kind of put her career, not exactly on a hold, but on into a low gear or low volume. Mm, it yes. was still, stuff was still happening. But the idea was that when I came back from Good Omens, she could step to the front and I would step out of the limelight and into the shadows. Yeah. And that's basically how it's worked. And right now she has uh, one more gig, a month off, and then a bunch of English gigs. On I think there's, there's a gig in Portugal in there somewhere. But basically, you know, she's winding down and then we go off to Australia and I continue being dad and primary caregiver so she can go and do an Australian tour. Yeah. And then we get home to America and we get to look around and blink <laughs> in April and go, well, okay, wh where are we at? Yeah. And what's happening? And that's going to be the point where, you know, Ash is really good about being perfectly cheery and willing to go willing to travel with us and willing to go to other schools and yeah. things like that but he's also starting to get to the point where he gets homesick he talks about his friends back in woodstock mm. and wants to be with them and he likes his friends here but you know he'll he'll lie in bed and he'll say dada tell me a story and i said what what story would you like and he would say tell me about uh the wizard of oz and Ash and my friend Jude. <laughs> and I will tell him a version of a story that he wants, yeah. starring him and his friend Jude from Woodstock. I love it. As I said, it seems like a, a, a wonderful balance of, of, of all these things across your career and life in going, you know, we can make these things work. It, it might not be easy. There will be... We can't be too rigid. There's going to have to be flexibility, but, you know, we can get there. It's it, Flexibility, I think, is kind of the only thing that gets us through any of this stuff. Yeah. It doesn't have to be easy. Um, I, I, you know, I look at people where I go, you know, it would have been so much easier for me or for Amanda if we just had a wife <laughs> who would have kept the home going and stayed there and either of us could have gone off and, yeah. um, and instead we found each other, which is like two, two planet sized things that were not designed ever to orbit anything else. We were designed to be orbited, Yeah, but we both, I think our hearts are in the right place and we love each other and we love Ash. And that I think keeps us going through the complicated bits. And yeah. it means that we want to work things out, yeah. you know. And Amanda, who has spent most of, you know, ever since I bought the place in Woodstock at the beginning of 2014, end of 2013, so she's basically spent six years going, I can't wait to be out of here, I can't wait to be out of here, let's <laughs> go somewhere else, I can't wait to be out of here. Uh, on this trip, for the first time, has been sending me messages saying, I'm really homesick for Woodstock. I love it. And I'm like, okay, good. Well, then that's good. Yeah. We'll try and be there more. We'll, yeah. We'll make it happen. That's perfect. I love that. Well, that's, that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you very much for, uh, for oh. your time. And I'm glad that we could make this happen. As I said, we've been going back and forth for a while, haven't we? So, I yeah. love it. And let's, let's 
Try and do another one in three or four years. 100% up for that. That'd be lovely. Thank you very much. Cheers. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Neil Gaiman. Thank you all for tuning in um, and for waiting for this to happen because it's been on the cards for a long time and I couldn't be happier that we made it work. I thought that was an amazing chat. I love sitting down with Neil. I could have, I could be just as happy if I hadn't released that because just getting to sit down and have that talk and that catch up was so heartwarming and so motivational and educational for me so yeah but i'm glad that you guys got to hear it as well but yes as i said as ever speech development com for merch patreon.com slash scroobius pip for patreon stuff um and i'll be back next week i can't tell you who the guest is yet because as you listen to this on a wednesday i'm scheduled to record it on a thursday but it may or may not happen Basically, I've got a load of other great episodes already recorded and lined up for in December, and I'll move one of them in early, which will be a treat. But if I can get this one recorded, it'll be out a quick turnover to be out next week. Um, But I don't want to jinx it and tell you who it is. So, yeah. Anyway, I will see you all next week. Ta-ta.